You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Eater's Digest, a show about all things food and dining. I'm Amanda Clute, Editor-in-Chief of Eater. And I'm Daniel Janine, a producer at Eater. Amanda, this week we are talking to Padma Lakshmi, uh, the host of one of my favorite shows of all time, Truly Truly, Top Chef. Uh, she's been hosting that show, you know, what feels like for a, a very long time, I think 17 or 18 seasons now. Yeah. And uh, today, I believe, depending on when you are listening to this program, she just had a new show come out on Hulu called Taste the Nation, where she is going around to different immigrant communities. She's looking at political issues, societal issues, representation issues, often through a single dish that they have chosen to represent that community. And uh, it came up, started with her work with ACLU. And it's I mean, it's a it's a fun, interesting show. And, you know, it's 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 always interesting to see the different ways that people are incorporating politics and storytelling into food programming. I highly recommend you check out the show. But first, listen to our interview with Padma. And uh, after we talk to Padma, we get into some of the major storylines in the food world this week. But first, here is Padma Lakshmi. Padma Lakshmi, welcome to the show. Uh, congratulations on your new show premiering on June 19th. June 18th now, they told me. June, okay, June 18th, sorry. Can you talk a little bit about the impetus for the idea behind the show, how the development process went? Sure. Um, it's basically a direct result of my work with the American Civil Liberties Union. I started working with them shortly after the election in early 2017. Um, at that time, there were a lot of things being said in the media and out of Washington that were really vilifying to immigrants. And as an immigrant myself, I took great offense to that. And concurrently, um, during that process, I was working with my producing partner, David Smith, uh, part two pictures, and we were going to do an immigration show because of all this information. And then separately, I was doing a cookbook and I showed him the research that I'd compiled and, and he thought we should combine the two projects. Um, the idea behind the show is to go to a community and pick one dish that may or may not be really what they eat, but is in the larger consciousness what we think of when we think of that cuisine traditionally. And so using that dish as kind of a Trojan horse to get me embedded into this community. And you know, for 14 years of my life, I've been talking about some very highfalutin food on Top Chef. And I knew for a fact that that's not how most people eat regularly in their lives. And so um, as someone who's not a chef and is a home cook and writer, I wanted to explore on the ground what people were eating in those different communities and use that to talk about some deeper issues because food is of course, excuse me, fetishized um, in our culture. Um, but for most people, it, it's tied with a lot of nostalgia and identity and emotions. Um, and so I wanted to use 
food to get to those issues. Yeah. I noticed in one of the episodes, you're on the border town of El Paso and you're talking to a restaurant owner who employs all of these Mexican chefs and cooks and is an avid Trump supporter. And in the scene, you are holding hands and trying to have this conversation. And I was wondering, like, what does she feel like in this moment? Because you are so resistant to Trump and his administration, and yet you are learning through the conversation what his point of view is. I thought it was important to have him in the show. You know, again, while it's not a piece of journalism, I want, I think it um, improves my credibility if I try to be as impartial as I can and show both sides. So I wanted that interview very badly. I was warned that Maynard was cantankerous, moody, profane, could, you know, politically incorrect and maybe even racist. You know, I think he had intimidated my film producer a lot. um, And I felt badly for her for putting, you know, her in that pre-interview situation. And, And so I was kind of ready for everything. And I really wanted the interview. So I... I was just, again, going at it with just be fluid and, and see what he gives you. Um, he did. He grabbed my hand very <laughs> on. It was awkward. It was so awkward. But, you know, I have uncles like that in my family. And if it gave him comfort mm-hmm. or, or I know this sounds weird, but like even a little bit of pleasure to hold my hand, if that was what it took, yeah. I didn't feel exploited in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, I was fine to hold his hand. You, if you watch the interview, by the way, that interview took 90 minutes and it was fucking <laughs> oh freezing in El Paso. Yeah. <laughs> it was so cold. There's a space heater there. I was still really cold. So he's been sitting on that rocking chair for 63 years. Mm-hmm. You know, I think Maynard, especially others in his generation, but also in our generation, I'm, I'm almost 50. Um, I think there's a disconnect for a lot of people mm-hmm. um, on policy versus the actual human exchange of daily life. And he talks about his employees, um, you know, like his family. And he, you know, I'm sure doesn't pay them what they should be paid. Um, but I'm also sure that they get paid more by Maynard than they do, uh, than they would if they had that same job in Juarez. And so I wanted to look at how these twin cities who have always kind of existed in, um, some, in a symbiotic relationship with each other. You know, it's a rite of passage for every high schooler to kind of go and party in Juarez. I mean, Maynard's daughter herself told me that when she had a graduation party, she didn't want to have it in El Paso. She wanted to have it in Juarez because that's what was cool. And then Juarez got dangerous and stuff. But the actual locals have always had this, you know, give and take much, much like in New York, where, you know, there's so many people coming in from Brooklyn, from New Jersey, from Queens to the city working and leaving. And all the cool restaurants are now in Brooklyn. It's, you know, it's 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 in a way a form of that. And so these laws that are handed down um, from Washington have completely. So I wanted to see again, how these lofty notions that are often made devoid of getting to know the people they actually directly affect do affect those people. It seems like you didn't want to make any kind of like hard and fast point about it. And you just wanted to let them have a platform so that all these people could just say what their day to days are like interacting with each other. And then he says, like, I'm going to vote for Trump because what option do I have? And obviously the implication is, well, hey, it's going to, I mean, even that action makes it so your employees have to spend a lot longer at the border every day. But I, I feel like you you don't say those things explicitly in the thing, right? Like, is, is that a, a conscious? My job was not to be there as an ACLU representative trying to convince him that his behavior was wrong. Mm-hmm. My job in that instance, I believe, was to document his authentic point of view without trying to manipulate it. You know, if the camera was off and we had time and I didn't have to go to my next location, I might have sat there and been like, you're full of shit. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and, and, you know, it's a different conversation that I have. I mean, he's like, you know, you also have to be mindful that 
you're in his space. You've asked to talk to him. You know, you've asked his employees to stop working or talk to me outside on their lunch break. So there's a certain just graciousness that I felt I needed to have. I appreciate that, though, because I feel like uh, for years, everyone in the media or everyone online or everyone, maybe people who are particularly vocal who go to the store are calling are telling him he's full of shit. And then it reinforces what he already thinks about the other side. And, and I, about the media. Yeah. Well, and I'll, yeah, yeah. I think also, I don't know if you all remember Bourdain's episode where he went to West Virginia and was, was talking to those people there about what it was like to work in the mines. And this isn't the exact same thing, but there is a parallel where sometimes you'd need to show these people in their environments and hear what they have to say. And that's how you can make some sort of progress. You know, I don't, I know for a fact that I wouldn't have gotten to know him as well if I tried to talk to him rather than just listen to what he had to say. And that, and that's why I was there. I wasn't there because I wanted my audience to know my opinion. I was there because I wanted my audience to be exposed to people like Maynard, to be, expe- you know, to be exposed like to people like Rosa in the Peruvian episode. Um, and and those are the people that make up this country. You know, that's what this country is like. And um, a lot of people, especially in media, live on on either coasts and and they're insulated in a way to their own detriment. And so for me, I wanted to come away from the series changed because I knew, or just educated, you know, just more informed. And I knew that um, if I didn't let them speak, then the point of doing the show would have been lost. Were there other... Because I've seen a lot of shows like that. We've all seen millions of travel shows, you know, and they're all nice and they all take a survey of what's cool or hip or delicious or what are the hidden gems in um, a particular city. And that's great. And that's kind of a lifestyle show that I've done before you know, in my, early in my career that I really love also consuming. But I wanted, I wanted this food show to have greater cultural meaning, at least to me. You know, if I was going to do a second TV show and be away from my kid, and I wanted it to be worth it. It seems like historically, not a lot of people get the opportunity to do a smart cultural show about food outside of Bourdain's history, you don't see a ton of shows like that. And I'm wondering what has that been like from the inside? Like, do you, do you see that changing? Was it really hard to get the screen lit? Um, that's a great question. Yeah, I see it changing. I, I think a big shift was, and a big, beautiful instance of it was Samin's show. You know, never did you see Um, a woman doing that. You have a lot of examples of men, kind of these male chefs swashbuckling all over the world, right? And and that show, and that's what Tony's show is about in another way. You know, Andrew Zimmern is coming at it from another angle. Then Marcus Samuelson is coming at it from a PBS angle. And then, you know, Alton Brown is coming at it from a scientific angle, but they're all men. And you know, when people first started talking to me about the show or I would talk to them, I'd be like, oh, it's like Bourdain. And I would say, well, you know, I was friends with Tony for 20 years, not great friends, but I saw him consistently in my life. And and that show only works because of Tony, because that show relies so much on, on his personality. I mean, he basically rewrote that show in voiceover. And, you know, he did that show for 12 years on the travel channel pretty much the way he wanted to in a very lo-fi way. This show cannot be that. It cannot be Andrew Zimmern's show. It cannot be any of those other shows I mentioned because I'm not those people. And, you know, I wanted, I love travel. I, I couldn't do what I do if my life hasn't been full of travel, first as a child who traveled between cultures, but also in my early career. So. I wanted to be able to do that as a woman. I was tired of women having to be, um, you know, delicate or or kind of coquettish or sweet or well-dressed. I was sick of fucking wearing heels. <laughs> I, um, 
did my own makeup. I lived in my car. I didn't have, you know, a trailer or anything. And it was so liberating. And at some point, yeah, I mean, I had a makeup artist for some of the episodes. And, and at some point, I love her. She's a great makeup artist and I still use her. Um, but I know for a fact that like when you're trying to capture an environment, um, the less of a footprint you have, the better. Um, so I just had to make that choice and, and, you know, I'm vain like everybody else. Like I want to look pretty. I'm not, you know, I'm not like all of a sudden claiming I don't care about what I look like, but I wanted the, I wanted the, the freedom to be crass. I wanted to swear. I want, you know, I wanted to have the full experience that I would have if the camera wasn't on. Um, and somewhere between, you know, the show being bought by Hulu and us going into edits of the episodes, Disney bought Hulu, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And so um, I was really worried because, you know, I know that after I was seeing memos, like we, we really see this show as a co-viewing show, you know, much like Top Chef, that um, kids and the family can watch it with grownups. And I just wanted to make sure, I said, this is an adult show. You know, I have a kid and I'm always looking for things I can watch with my 10-year-old, so I get it. But I wanted the freedom to be how I am. You know, I don't know if you guys have watched the Chinese episode yet. Um, You know, there there were things in that episode that were going to be cut that I had to fight to keep in because we never see women being sexual except to try to attract the audience or try to, you know, um, seduce someone else. We never see people, we never see, I've not seen a lot of women who are on TV and who play themselves, who are just, you know, all the things that all human beings are. And, and I knew that the more myself I was or, or, or tried to be, the more that my guests on my show, my interview subjects would be themselves. And I needed to show myself if I wanted them to show me. And was it, was it hard at first? Cause like you obviously have, insane level of reps doing top chef stuff. And I'm sure you've, it seems like you probably would have gotten into a rhythm in that world and in the way that you act on that set. So was it hard to break? Oh, it wasn't hard for me, but, um, (laughs) you know, for so many years, what the American public has seen of me is such a narrow version of my personality. And that's a function of the format of top chef. You know, Mm -hmm. it, for me to do my job well, it requires me sublimating my personality a lot because I want to get to the guest judges and what they think. I want to get information out of the contestants, etc. There's so much business to happen that people didn't really get to see what I was like. Um, I've done TV outside of Top Chef, you know, albeit like you know, a long time ago because I've been doing Top Chef for 14 years. But I've, I've worked in different countries, you know, I've worked in different languages on live television. So that wasn't hard. That wasn't hard at all because I was dying to, to do that. You right. know, um, the main thing for me with this show is, is for good or bad, I wanted it, I wanted creative control. I didn't want somebody else to tell me how to be. I was I was not thinking of, okay, I have to be totally different than I am on Top Chef, or I wanted to be more comfortable, which is why my wardrobe mm-hmm. is what it is versus what it is on Top Chef. But, um, and also would have been inappropriate, you know, in a lot of situations I was in. But I really just wanted to be free. I just, I, I didn't want to have any artifice. I just wanted to ask the questions and, and, and just get the answers. And I wanted that human connection. I wanted to get to know these people. You know, um, and given the choice between going to a white tablecloth um, tasting menu, you know, at the best restaurant in any city or having, you know, a food truck crawl, I would choose the latter because that was, that's how that's what my tastes run naturally toward. I have great respect for Michelin star chefs. I know the skill um, and and technical execution involved in that kind of dining. I respect it. I value it. I just on my own time, I'm not interested in it anymore. 
or as much, nearly as much. I'm interested in how most people in the world eat. You never hear people say who spend years and years uh, in that in the kind of Michelin level communities. You never hear them say, you know, I've just spent so much time in these communities and it's really increased my love for it. And I want to spend more time. (laughs) Some people, though, they they stay in it. So many of these people, they stay, but they're never like, I'm more excited now than I've ever been about a four four hour meal. Yeah. Yeah. I follow you on Twitter and you're very vocal about your political beliefs and opinions. And I'm wondering, would you want to explore a show that's even more overtly political talking about what food and politics mean, especially in this moment? Sure, I would. I mean, let's hope enough people watch and enjoy Taste the Nation and that I get that opportunity. Um, I started my hosting career in Italy um, on a live show and there was no (laughs) tape delay. Um, And it wasn't about food. It was just, you know, one of those big variety shows and I was part of a bigger cast and I was sort of the sidekick to the main host. Um, And I learned a lot on that show. And I really enjoy the spontaneous conversation of live television. There's nothing to beat it. And so I would, I mean, the title of this show is not an accident. You know, it is, it's a play on Face the Nation. Um, And I would love a show like that, but not even that just explores food and politics, although that is, of course, a natural jumping point. And by the way, and a very deep well from which to to call conversation. But I would, you know, I feel like we've gotten so polarized. I mean, you know, in media, there's a formula. Someone's someone's pushing a book or a, an album or, you know, a show. Um, and they come on and they talk about that and it's all very pre-rehearsed. But I would love to do a show that has, and I've tried to pitch this show forever, by the way, Um, a show where you have people from all, you know, two or three guests from different walks of life. So you have like Shaquille O'Neal and Lord and, you know, Aziz Ansari. I'm making this Mm -hmm. up, obviously. And And the conversation between these three people and having that. And there are, there are shows that have tried to do that. Um, but I don't think anyone has found a way to crack that nut. And that's a show I would feel excited to watch and participate in as well or host um, because it's what I do in my own living room. You know, my fa- I, I don't go out to eat as much as people think I do, um, but I love to have dinner parties and I love to curate a guest list. To me, that's my jam. Like that is wonderful. And to just introduce people to each other and to you know, hear them speak because I want to learn, you know, I want, I want to learn how to be funny from Aziz. I want to learn um, how to be well-informed and right from David Remnick. I want to be able to, you know, understand um, whatever it is. And so bringing those people together is exciting to me. And, and I think in the next phase of my career, I would like to make a decent living doing what I naturally do for free in my own life. Do you think this moment will lead to more opportunities like that for a show like that or for, I don't know, better representation in TV in general? I hope so. I mean, when I was waiting for um, our conversation to start, we were just reading Business Insider. Um, (laughs) Dark. um, It's very dark. And, you know you would think that it would be easy for me to get coverage because I've been on TV for 14 years. Top Chef is in 60 countries. Um, I feel like I've earned the right, you know, to to actually have some copy space in, in, in some big food magazines. But I mean, I couldn't get arrested at Bon Appetit and now I know why, mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, and you hate that as, or I hate that as, as a brown person, as a woman, I hate having to explain um, why I can't crack a certain nut with that excuse. But when you feel like you have this undertow, this invisible force that you cannot square with any of your actions or, you know, what can I do? Then you start to be like, oh, okay. 
because nobody wants to say that, right? I mean, gross. Like you don't want to blame your your inability to achieve something that you think is important on that kind of stuff. But if and then so it embarrasses you. It embarrasses you to even talk about it. And I think the people in power just kind of ignore it because they don't believe it. And so you need what, but when you see so many people with the exact same experience saying the exact same thing, I mean, what the hell? Um, it's like these people feel, feel gaslit that they're not being listened to. And that's like, Oh wait, this I is everyone. I cannot believe that it was like that you don't pay one person the same as you pay the other person for doing the exact same work. I get, you know, hopefully if someone has more experience and more stuff on their resume, they make a different paycheck than somebody who's starting out. But fuck, like that is just blatant racism and sexism and it's illegal, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's horrifying. And I think in this moment, we're learning about so many industries and specific companies and brands that have a lot of reckoning to do. Um, and oftentimes, I hope in these moments, it leads to better people getting better opportunities and better people Me getting too. in the room. Yeah. I mean, I have to admit that one time I went to some Persian restaurant in San Diego and for some reason, somebody at Bon Appetit wrote a really long article about that meal that I put on Instagram. But, you know, that was just like random. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> Adam wasn't looking very hard that day. You know, <laughs> but, but it's happened. Yeah, somebody was golfing. But that happens. That shit happens all the time, you know. And and it's it's good that it's coming out. I'm happy. Like, you know, no one wants anyone's career to be ruined. But like. I'm glad people are making a stink. My neighborhood was totally trashed, like completely fucking trashed. Okay. In, in the looting and stuff. And I, it's fine. I really don't care. I care much more about the people who had the courage to, you know, in spite of COVID, like go out there and demonstrate and protest. Um, I'm, I'm glad that, Every now and then society needs a seizure. Society needs like a, you know, some kind of shock. And it's unfortunate that it it's on the backs of these black men. Absolutely. And to go back to the show, you talk about immigrant cuisines and one of them is the Gullah Geechee community. And I think that's important to include in whenever you're talking about you know, the foods that make up America. Definitely. I mean, that episode was really important to me. It was probably the episode I did the most amount of research for. We filmed this time last year um, or a little bit later, uh, maybe in August. It was really hard in Charleston. <laughs> that's all I remember. But um, I really enjoyed that, that episode because, um, you know, we never think about African-American cuisine um, as having its ancestry and roots in another continent, the way we look at immigrant cuisine, but it obviously does. And, you know, it is forced migration. And so I was sick of seeing African-American food just painted with a broad brush of soul cooking or Southern food or whatever. And I wanted to see what was it in as much as it's possible, separated from its white colonial ties. And when I was in Charleston with Top Chef, um, I met BJ Dennis and we became friends. Um, and, you know, like I said, on Top Chef, we don't have time to go into a lot of history because of the competition that we have to show. But we did a tribute dinner to Edna Lewis um, at Middleton Place. And we got a lot of flack for going to what used to be a plantation. Um, and so I wanted to go back there actually, because we can either avoid it and be like, we're not going to, you know, justify that location, uh, with our presence, or we can go there and we can face it and say, this ugly episode in our history is part of our legacy too. And so that that whole episode is really, really important to me. Also, you know, about the different um, African cultures and, and the theory that um, certain enslaved people were sought after because of their rice cultivation knowledge. And that, you know, the Carolina rice industry 
um, declined right after Juneteenth, um, right after, you know, the end of slavery. And that's not an accident. Well, it's truly excellent. And we hope all of our listeners check it out on Hulu uh, starting June 18th now. Yeah, 18th. Thank you so much for talking with us about all of these things and especially for doing the show. Thank you, guys. Take care. Amanda, we will be right back with the biggest stories of the week. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Amanda, we are back from the break to discuss some of the biggest food stories in the week. From the week. Uh, first, there's been an interesting, a couple interesting stories coming out of Chicago to do with uh, their cocktail program, but now more pressing, uh, a restaurant called Fat Rice. So we have Eater Chicago editor Ashok Selvam on to talk about it. Ashok, welcome welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, Ashok, there is a pretty major restaurant in your city, uh, Fat Rice, and a lot has been going on there. Can you tell us just from the beginning what's what's been happening? Wow, that is, uh, that's an epic story. Uh, around June 1st, uh, Fat Rice, which is this like kind of... Uh, Cool restaurant opened in 2012. It's a uh, Macanese, so it combines Chinese and Portuguese flavors. And uh, the chef owner Abe Conlin has gotten all these awards. 2018, he won a James Beard Award for Best Chef Great Lakes. Uh, you know, people really dig his food. So June 1st, uh, we got protests all over. We're reacting to it, and you see restaurants all over the country in Chicago are putting out messages saying like, you know, Black Lives Matter, what uh, what it means to them. And um, Conlin and uh, co-owner Adrian Lowe, they put out a very subtle message. Uh, you know, we believe in change. That was not enough for some of the, the former employees because Fat Rice, you know, you have a, a white chef doing uh, cuisine that is not from his culture. And it gets into like kind of sticky appropriation issues, which we don't want to get way into because that's a whole other you know podcast on. <laughs> but uh, folks did not like his response. They didn't think it was specific enough. They thought it was disgenuine. And they felt that they were being mistreated. So in the whole spirit of the protest, they just came out. They started sharing anecdotes of being bullied in the kitchen. They sent, uh, They shared stories of black uh, workers being treated differently than white workers and Instagram, which is flooded with these stories, flooded to the amount that, uh, you know, they had to apologize. And you saw uh, former workers piling up their uniforms in front of the restaurant. One former worker, and this is on Instagram, uh, shot a video of them torching a uniform wow. using a fire pit. Uh, it was It was really powerful and a lot of these stories I mean it was a powder keg oh this pressure back and forth uh, fat rice which was already closed it was uh, it pivoted uh, you know 2020's favorite word is pivoted <laughs> it has already gone toward a general store model and because of all the criticism they decided to close what did Abe Conlon say to you about this decision and his apology well he did he's been criticized for kind of hiding behind the public relations firm. I, I've done uh, stories in the past. I did a controversial story last year about uh, him using uh, playing hip hop at the restaurant with explicit lyrics that use the N word. And we didn't, we didn't do a face to face or phone interview. That was, I got two statements uh, that were doctored uh, PR wise, but for this one, we, we spoke and he said that he, needed the time to reflect, that he was sorry, that he was part of a system and benefited from a a system that favored white people, and he wanted to do the work to improve. Now, what that specific work, like a lot of the apologies seem like kind of torn out of the page of like, you know, a company playbook, 
But at the same time, that was as, you know, as straightforward as I have heard him in quite a while. As far as your, uh, I guess, your best guess, will Fat Rice reopen? It left that very open-ended. Conlin and Lowe, they were married and now they're divorced. They seemed like they were uh, diverging. And, you know, Conlin said that to me. Lowe said that, like they were diverging. Conlin said, you know, we might just run away and go to the woods and never hear from us again. Um, maybe we'll come back as a soup kitchen. Maybe we'll come back as a center to study how culture and food intersect. Huh. Uh, but they weren't, they weren't sure. I, I think uh, they've been together for so long, even as business partners, it's just natural for to say that they're going to drift. But also there's such like, he's such a big fan of the brand. And, you know, even when they, uh, rebranded or not rebranded, they, they switched models to a general store. They still kept the Fat Rice name. They were super Fat Rice Mart. So to give that up, I think that's going to take a lot of, like something has to convince him. Do you think this is going to happen to more restaurants? Do you, do you foresee this being an ongoing story, especially with the anti-bullying? Because that is such a big part of an old school traditional restaurant culture that hasn't really been reckoned with um, over the last few years? A hundred percent. I mean, Fat Rice is probably the, one of the highest profile restaurants in Chicago. It certainly was one of the most unique and it really had kind of a, uh, like a, a punk rock rebellious attitude and it's already happening. Uh, we're seeing on Instagram, these accounts that are dedicated to exposing, uh, bad actors. Uh, they're not very well vetted, but uh, they are drawing a lot of attention. I'm getting random people emailing me. I've, you know, of my socially distant bar going, people have asked me, come up to me from six feet away to, to ask me, have you seen this? And I'm like, yes, I have. I have. What are you going to do about it? Well, I cannot just go ahead and, you know, investigate 30 different uh, situations at once uh, as much as I would like to. Uh, so this will be ongoing, and uh, you, you, even with Fat Rice, you saw a couple of chefs, uh, Jason Hamill, uh, Beard Nominio from Lula Cafe. He kind of wrote a manifesto and a little self-reflection on ways he could improve. Uh, Jennifer Kim, she was uh, Eater, I think, 28th uh, Chef of the Year, Eater Chicago's. Uh, she wrote a very uh, uh, moving piece on Instagram. And it's weird that mm-hmm. we're, like, leaning on Instagram as a... Uh, a forum. I'm not sure if that's the best way of having these conversations, but at least the conversations are happening. But yeah, I'm. This, this is this is an ongoing saga. Let's let's go into something celebratory, just to change the mood up a little bit. You guys now have to go cocktails. That is correct. Uh, June seventeenth, one twenty-six p.m. The first legal to go cocktail was sold in Chicago at Kamiko from. Uh, Eater Young Gun alum Julia Mamos, and it she was so excited. She <laughs> was like giddy, clapping her hands because she has been the face of the campaign. To she's talked with lawmakers on the state and city level since mid March, and she first of all, Kamiko is one of the best bars in Chicago. Like, like I'm, I miss that place. I don't miss a lot of the spots, unfortunately, but I really miss wow. that place. <laughs> and right, now, I, I really do. So Julie has been like working with uh, lobbyists uh, since since March, and not a lot of movement on the on by government. They've had a lot to to worry about. Uh, understood, but finally, yeah. uh, Chicago City Council yesterday afternoon made it legal. But because up to this point, you could sell booze in Chicago, but it it had to be sold in whole bottles, right? Yeah, if it's in uh, the original container. So you could do like bars were selling six packs, bars were selling, uh, you know, bottles of vodka, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, Chicago's uh, liquor laws are pretty antiquated. So you're not even allowed to do uh, infusions. Are you excited to, uh, Amanda, we'll talk about this again later, but are you excited to have the groups of people outside bars drinking cocktails and treating the outdoor space as if it's the indoors. Oh, wow. No, not so much. 
Uh, especially when they're not wearing face masks and they're just like kind of strolling the area and they don't really pay attention at all to anyone except for themselves. No, I mean, we've already seen like it's a phenomenon in Chicago. I don't know what's happening in other cities uh, outside Starbucks every weekend. We're seeing long lines of folks not caring about social distancing, not wearing their masks. And like you're going to like caffeine's one thing, but booze is a whole other animal, I feel. So am I looking forward to that? Yeah. <laughs> and in Chicago, don't you guys have inspectors that are going around trying to enforce social distancing distanced guidelines? Yeah, I mean, in the West Loop, which is uh, uh, close to downtown, it's where a lot of the, the big name restaurants, Rick Bayless and Stephanie Iser have uh, spots over there. Uh, they're also a very complainy neighborhood. So uh, they fielded, they send out a lot of uh, complaints to their uh, local aldermen. And the, the byproduct was, uh, it was I think it was two weekends ago, the, the first weekend that uh, outdoor dining was allowed, uh, the city inspectors were out. They were making sure that tables were six feet apart. They were making sure necessary signage was, was up. And uh, they fined three businesses. They won't mm. tell me if the businesses mean that could be three restaurants, could be three, you know, stores. They and they got like I think it was like over like 170 or some complaints wow. overall. So yeah, we're getting secret shoppers. What was the fine? Was it a, f- a financial thing? I mean, yeah, I'm stupid. that's sorry. That's the dumbest. <laughs> frankly, the dumbest thing money? I've ever said in my entire <laughs> life. So the fine was a fine, <laughs> or <laughs> no? But so what? What? What did they get slapped with? Uh, they won't say, but they only like uh, they like to be threatening. Uh, upwards thousand mm-hmm. dollars. Just to wrap up, how what's the vibe like in uh, Chicago these days? Bars opened yesterday or had the ability to open, yet I don't see a lot of bars mm. open. Like, yeah, you know, interesting. The, the government didn't give them much time to get their staffs together, get prepared. So, and folks are are freaked out. They're freaked out. They don't. They like their servers are really worried that they're going to get sick. They're hearing stories about New York, Houston, and Florida, and they, they just they don't want that to happen to Chicago. Mm-hmm. So kind of mellow. Like last week, folks were like, "Yay, restaurants are open. We can do street fests." And then the like on Saturday, folks were pretty boozed up, and they're like, "Maybe we will <laughs> wait on this." Smart. Mm. Interesting. So it doesn't it doesn't have that same raw raw to, or raw raw attitude throughout the city as they do in some of the more southern st- cities. Hundred percent. Yeah, there's a little bit more Midwest reservedness, I guess. Yeah. Well, Ashok, thanks so much for checking in with us. We appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you. No problem. Be good, folks. Enjoy those takeout cocktails. <laughs> oh, I will. So, Daniel. Earlier on the show, we've talked about how we are fans of to-go cocktails and the ability to buy wine and drinks from restaurants and bars as not a silver lining of COVID, but kind of a nice thing to have. Oh, yeah. It's uh, the best. It helps, it helps these businesses make some sort of income. And as a consumer, I like walking around my neighborhood with a little cocktail or getting a nice cocktail to bring to my house. Anyway, it's seems to be a little too popular in New York. And now there's a bit of a backlash from government officials. Yeah. Uh, the New York, the New York post released a report saying that there weren't enough public bathrooms to account for this new, uh, popular business. And people are relieving themselves in parks all over the city. Um, Brad Hoyleman, who is the politician who came up with the bill allowing restaurants and bars to sell, take out wine, beer, and cocktails, said he's reconsidering the bill. Andrew Cuomo, our governor, is threatening to revoke liquor licenses if bars don't uh, police the area in front of their establishments and keep social distancing guidelines in check. Because right now, people are just out on the street enjoying the nice weather, drinking to-go cocktails, and kind of partying it up. God, everything Cuomo says, he sounds like that like a camp counselor who's like, listen, we let you guys, you know, use flashlights in your tents to read. But if you stay, if you keep staying up past 11, we're going to take the flashlights <laughs> and there's going to be no more comic books. It does, yeah. it, it, it's, I mean, that's a lot of the, like, I guess, vibe between politicians and the general public right now is kind of 
chastising everyone. <laughs> like, why can't you just behave? I, yeah. We we gave you an inch and you took a mile vibe. I will say there, there's a really funny there's a really funny thing I feel like that's come up with people that are hanging, grabbing a cocktail, cruising around the city with friends, you know, employing safe social distance or not in masks. But that is all hangouts are limited to like one to two hours because you got to pee. You can't trust. Yeah. You can't trust that you're going to find a bathroom anywhere. And restaurants aren't going to let you in to use their bathroom. They don't it's basically no. you're completely on your own out in the streets without resources that you would uh, typically have. And I haven't. I'm not going to talk about that, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> you haven't. What I, thought I was going to say, I have not relieved myself in a park, in a park on the street. I mean, yeah, I have not. But good, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I have wanted to i just (laughs) it does yeah it does put a time limit on your socially distanced date when you've had a couple cocktails what are you you calling a date we didn't find somewhere to be i'm just saying for example if one were to go on a socially distanced date or like sure i'll come you know wait in line with you at whole foods or whatever you gotta you gotta cap on that which is actually kind of nice because you can it's a good new tool to get out of any situation Oh, I got to go all the way home and pee. Sorry. This has been great. This has been great. This has been so fun. Got to go pee. What am I going to go upstairs and then come come back out? We're going to lose all of our rapport. If you were on a date, I imagine that's something that someone might say. In a similar vein, Mm -hmm. you are seeing a lot of shifts in policies in states like Texas where things opened up pretty widely and now there have to be some retractions. For example, in Austin, uh, Texas allowed everyone to open t- up to 75% capacity for indoor dining. And in Austin this week, they are asking, they asked restaurateurs to go back to 25%, yeah. which is a pretty big shift. And then you're seeing stories out of pretty much every Texas city about all these restaurants closing down because employees have test positive for COVID-19. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of like stops and starts, which is what everyone predicted and feared when we started to reopen, that it wouldn't just be a smooth thing. We would have to like go back and then open up again and then go back and then everyone's closing. It's it's a nightmare. Which actually brings you right back to the like to the government PPP. And they've obviously extended the deadline in which you have to rehire your employees, which is great. But like, can you imagine if you'd rehired employees trusting banking on the 75% and then they cut it back down to the 25%, you know, every, all the government, like government organizations are scrambling just as hard as, as restaurants. All of this stuff is nearly unenforceable, right? Those, those percentages are really, are really tough. So I, I think, you're seeing more and more restaurants just overtly defy these these uh, restrictions and kind of not be punished for it. So I guess we'll have to we'll have to see what happens if people start being penalized for disobeying their camp counselors. Yeah. Last story this week: Quaker mm-hmm. announced that Aunt Jemima syrup will be changing its name and its branding finally because they are admitting that it is racist, and mm-hmm. I believe. Let me see. Is, did Uncle Ben say the same? Let me see. Uncle Ben's, which uses the image of an elderly black man on his packaging, has been criticized for both the image and the use of uncle in the name, as white Southerners once used uncle and boy to refer to black men because they refused to call them Mr. Uncle Ben's parent company said that now is the right time to evolve the Uncle Ben's brand, including, including its visual brand identity, which we will do. Yeah. Um, cream of wheat. They are going under an immediate review. They use an image of a smiling black man that was formerly named Rastus, a performative, a pejorative term for black men, frequent character in minstrel shows. And ConAgra announced it has begun a complete brand and packaging review of Mrs. Butterworth's. Real change, Daniel. What do you think? It's coming. I think it's great. I think this stuff is long overdue. It's yeah. ridiculous that like they went along for so long, not even giving this a second thought. Or I'm sure there were people at the companies who were like, hey, could we fucking change this thing? 
But now, you know, the public is forcing it. Public opinion gets things done, you know? It does. It does. One of the best responses, the dumbest things I've ever seen in my life, responses to this online. Somebody just like a classic naysayer, hater, or, you know, annoying, probably proud boy of some kind said, great, more black representation out the window. Good job, guys. You won again. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, they don't get it. They don't get it. <laughs> yeah. So, I I mean, I, I think these are all good things. I, well, I, what's funny with Aunt Jemima is they went through a brand refresh to make it less offensive. It was more <laughs> offensive before. And it's like, okay, but why don't you just do a whole overhaul? It'll be nice to talk about Aunt Jemima 10 years from now as a relic of the past, you know, just a thing that only us know about and not our young children. Exactly. Anyway, Daniel, I believe that is it for the show today. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you to Padma Lakshmi, and congratulations on the new show. It is called Taste the Nation on Hulu. Thanks to Ashok Salvam for dropping in. Be sure to follow him on Eater Chicago on all their excellent reporting. Thank you, Ashok. Thank you all. We will be back next week with more. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.